0: As you know, over these uh, three weeks, we're having a little short series looking at one or two of the minor prophets, and we're looking at them just as an outline, a survey, trying to pick out the main theme of the prophecy, to give us a little snapshot, a picture of what these prophecies are about. They're called minor prophets, not because they're less important than the others, but because they're short. They're just little, and as I've already mentioned, this is just three chapters long. Last week, we looked at Hosea. Hosea was a prophet who preached in the north, the part of the country called Israel, and uh, he, uh, Hezekiah, uh, Hosea rather, preached in the north before the children of Israel were taken off into exile to Babylon. A huge keystone, a marker of the history of Israel when they were carried off to Babylon. And Hosea preached before. Now, preaching in the south part of the country, which was called Judah, is this prophet by the name of Joel. His name means Jehovah is God or Yahweh is God. Now, we don't know a lot about Joel. We don't even quite know when he existed, the actual dates of him or anything like that. We know roughly when he existed. That's how we know he was, as they refer to him, a pre-exile prophet before they were carried off as slaves to Babylon. We know he was there, and he was uh, in, um, preaching in Judah in the south, but we don't know a lot about him. Chapter 1 tells us more or less all we know, and it tells us in chapter 1 that he was a prophet and that he was a son of Pethuel, Pethuel, whoever Pethuel was. There are about 20 Joels mentioned in the Bible, but they're not referring to this Joel. This is all we know about him. But if Hosea, that we thought of last week, was a message that was acted out in his life, in Hosea and his wife Gomer's life, when he was told by God to marry Gomer, who was a practicing prostitute, an extraordinary thing to do, and that became a demonstration to the people of how much God loved the people, that he was to go after her and win her back to himself, again and again, and that's a picture of how God wants us to come back to himself. If that was a sort of enacted parable, enacted story, which he then enlarged on in his preaching to convey God's message to the people, Joel is taking a natural disaster of his day to convey the message that God had for the people. And it shows how God works in that day And in this, he's in control even when it appears that he's not in control. That's the main theme of the book of Joel. Hosea shows us the heart of God. Joel shows us the hand of God at work. A loving, caring God, powerful and in control. You know, human beings are naturally curious creatures. We're all curious. And some people like to sit down and say, now what is it that really drives this world? What are the things that make things happen? What is the driving force in humanity? And there have been all sorts of theories, all sorts of ideas as to what that may be. For example, the Greeks, led by Aristotle, the thinker Aristotle, used to say, well, history moves in cycles. It starts with some great tyrant, A man of power, he arises and he dominates the people and he tells the people how to behave and what to do and so on. Some tyrant who's in charge, he seizes control of a nation but gradually his power begins to wane and disappears gradually and his dynasty fails. And when that happens, usually his power is passed on to a family. His family usually. An aristocracy. And that family, for maybe a few generations, carries on dominating the country. And then the power of that family begins to decrease. And people somehow, almost unconsciously, have a sense that his power is waning. And this is the time they can rise up. And the people rise up and begin to let their voice be heard. And they begin to take control. And Aristotle called that democracy that we still have today. When the people decide what happens... And then democracy begins to wane and begins to fall apart and doesn't seem too successful and the power of democracy begins to break down. And anarchy takes over and every man does what is right in his own eyes. And then anarchy, people begin to get so fed up with anarchy until a powerful figure arises and begins to take control and a strong man begins to seize control and the cycle starts all over again. And that's how Aristotle described society, and there's a lot of truth in it. And much of what we're seeing in the Middle East today is you can fit straight into that pattern that Aristotle um, talked about. Some say, well, it's not that sort of cycle of history. It's something political that controls humanity. Political. Thomas Jefferson sort of thought that. And the Declaration of Independence has some reflections of that when it talks about uh, men having inalienable rights, freedom, and peace, and all of that. And uh, then government is set up to protect those rights that men have by nature, he said. And so politics is the controlling power, Thomas Jefferson said. And then there are others, like... uh, Karl Marx, who comes along, said, no, it's the economy that in- controls everything. And economic forces are in control. And he followed Hegel and others when he talked about dialectical materialism. the sense of materialism and economy that's come from argument. The, the dialect are arguing backwards and forwards. When the groups argue backwards and forwards. And class struggles take place. And That's what... Karl Marx said it was economy that's in control. There are others like H.G. Wells said society is in control. And uh, things are getting better and better and better. And every generation is better than the last generation and so on because society is in control. And there are the evolutionists and say, well, the survival of the fittest is in control. One of the dominant themes. Of people today it's the idea that good eventually will come to the service surface and survival of the fittest will be seen and it'll lead to higher and higher circles actually it doesn't work of course when you look at it every generation uh, both animals and mankind left to themselves don't get better they get worse so often but this isn't the time to go into all of that and then there are others views of how mankind and how society Works? What is the controlling influence in society? But when you turn to the Bible, they, the Bible tells us that all of those are wrong. The Bible makes it quite clear that behind the whole course of human history there's a hand that is in control, the hand of God, in control. God is in control. And there's one fulcrum point of history where history rocks backwards and forwards, and one fulcrum point on which it all rests. And that is a spiritual point where God intervenes because God holds the whole world in the palm of his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Now, when that is understood, the Bible makes it quite clear that it brings peace and light to the individual and to society for that matter. When God is in control, righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. Now, uh, discovering that principle is not, has not always been easy, the fact that God is in control. And men have struggled with it and still struggle with it, of course. And that's why the prophets came along, because they needed to remind the people that, listen, you can see all these problems and difficulties going on around about, but actually God's in control. Actually, God has got it in the palm of his hand. You're all right. And every, every time they point it out, it's in the time of a, a great crisis in history. You turn to the Old Testament and you find way back, for example, the days of Noah. One of the key verses in the days of Noah is, 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 is Genesis 6, verse 3. Genesis 6, verse 3 says this. My spirit, God says, my spirit will not always contend or strive with man. What God is saying is, there'll come a time when I will, because of what's going on, I will withdraw my spirit. I will not restrain. I will not contend with man. I will no longer hold back man. And then we'll see what happens. And when God says that, and it comes several places in the scripture, when God takes that view, You'd better watch out because you know perfectly well that what's going to follow is judgment. And and Joel makes that quite clear. It's time for judgment. The Holy Spirit strives with man to keep him back from his evil that he would do till eventually God says enough is enough and he withdraws the work of his spirit and everything collapses and judgment strikes. You remember in the New Testament a similar picture is given. It talks about the time when the Holy Spirit will be withdrawn and God's Spirit will be withdrawn. And that will be the time when the Antichrist will arise and so on and judgment will begin and then the judgment will take place at the end. And it all happens because people would not recognize God as God. Now that's the theme of Joel. Judgment is coming because people refuse to trust God. Now, the way the prophets talk about that is very significant. They often look forward to an event. Now, in prophecy in the Old Testament, Joel and all the rest of them, in the prophecies in the Old Testament, they are often talking about a specific point in history that is to do with the people that he was actually speaking to. But it also speaks very often to one of the great events at the end of the age, whenever that is. Something that will take place. And between the immediate fulfillment and the ultimate fulfillment, there are all sorts of intermediate fulfillments. I said once here that it's like a picture. You know, in a picture of a landscape, there's the foreground. That's what's in focus right up close. Then there is the backdrop. You know, the mountains and the trees in the distance, the sky or whatever it is, in the background of this. But between that, there are the fields and the cattle and the people and the houses and so on, the, the intermediate parts. And prophecy is like that. So Joel, he speaks about things that are happening right there and then, but he's doing it with an eye to the ultimate fulfillment, something great that's going to happen. And in fact, the book of Joel looks further forward than almost any other prophet, right to the very end. But between, there are lots of intermediate fulfillments. For example, let's just take an example. It speaks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. It happened at Pentecost. A huge infilling of God's people with His Spirit and the birth of the church. That's the day of Pentecost. Last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday and it was referred to then. When the Holy Spirit came and the people of God received the presence of God indwelling them, etc. A huge, momentous event. But, you know, there's lots of fulfillments. When God, by his spirit, acts in such a way, we can refer to it almost like a mini Pentecost. You know, revivals take place. The 1904 revival in Wales. So extraordinary that people, hundreds and hundreds of people were converted. Sometimes almost without the intervention of man at all, something happened that they began to be aware of God's presence and they cried out to the Lord and so on. And they were changed immediately, so that in great swathes of South Wales, they had to close the magistrates' courts because they were no longer needed. And the pit ponies that worked down in the mines in South Wales stopped working too. And the reason the pit ponies stopped working is because they could no longer understand the language of the miners because they were so used to their cursing and swearing. That's what they understood. And when the minors were converted, they didn't use that language, and the pit ponies didn't know what to do. This is God at work. It's it's a minor, compared with Pentecost, it's a minor incident, but it's a huge incident when God, by his spirit, anoints an area, a group of people, and begins to work. That's a secondary Pentecost or the Hebridean revival And then you can speak about individual people. When God's Holy Spirit floods individually, that person may say, that's my Pentecost. And God dealt with an individual. Wonderful things take place, and that person is empowered and enriched and blessed beyond measure. So, yes, there is a great time when looked forward to by the prophets and so on, but then there are all sorts of subsequent fulfillments of it as well. And you can read about them in Scripture. And Joel has those different, view, different levels and sometimes they're woven in and out of each other and it takes a little work to distinguish the immediate from the ultimate and the intermediate. What he's actually referring to. But the message remains the same. So let's go and have a quick look at what he's speaking about here. This week, the immediate incident that he uses, unlike Hosea last week, he used his marriage, or God used his marriage as an illustration of the message. Here, the incident that is spoken of by Joel is the invasion of the land by locusts, as we've read together, a plague of locusts. Don't know whether you've ever had anything to do with locusts. If you've lived in this country, probably not. Unless you buy them at the pet shop to feed to your pet snake, or whatever it is that you have. We don't usually see locusts. We see grasshoppers, which is a small variety, but the big locusts, you hardly ever see. But if you have lived abroad, especially in most of the hot countries, you will have seen locusts, and sometimes, some of you may even have seen swarms of locusts. They can be absolutely devastating. The eggs can be buried in the ground, in the sand, in the soil, and they can remain there for more than 20 years. And suddenly... When the rains come and the conditions are right, they'll begin to hatch, and a swarm starts off. Now, in Joel's day, of course, you didn't just go to the cupboard and pick out your little aerosol can of spray and spray them and and to kill them and so on. And they certainly had no aircraft to spray. spray. But they can be devastating, these um, swarms of locusts. Last year, 2010, Australia had one a huge swarm of locusts. It was four, as they were flying, it was four kilometers high. And the area devastated was the size of Spain. Now that's a swarm. And uh, it's huge. I thought you might like just to see some, so let's put some on here. Here's another picture. The small ones before they, before they fly are called hoppers, and then they take to the air. It's nice, isn't it? So much so that they can block out the sun. That's a cloud of locusts. Isn't very clear there? A cloud, cloud of locusts coming over. It's certainly not the sort of thing that we would like. But that's what locusts were like. And this is what Joel is referring to right at the beginning. He says, you remember what's happened? It's the sort of thing that's happened. It's so, it's so devastating, so huge, that he said, um, you'll be passing this on to your children and to your grandchildren, and they'll talk about it to their grandchildren. A huge, devastating swarm of locusts. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Hear this, you elders, listen. All who live in the land, has everything, anything ever like this happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? Tell it to your children and so on. Verse 4, what the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. The sun was blocked out. The noise, they say, is like a rattling sound, like terrible hail which goes on as long as they're there. And when they go, nothing is left. Nothing that grows is left. Just brown soil. And Joel says in verse 10, the fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is is dried up and the oil fails. No wonder. Despair you farmers. Wail you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and barley because the harvest of the field. Is destroyed nothing is left look at verse 7 it's laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees it's even stripped the bark stripped the bark and thrown it away leaving the branches white that's what the locusts were like now though everybody knew about this of course and could see the invasion what they didn't realize was they didn't realize where it had come from we know that it comes from the eggs in the ground and then they hatch out and so on when the conditions are right and the swarm begins to grow and take off and so on. We know that, but, but actually behind it all, where's it come from? Is this just the natural devastating thing that happens in nature? Well, at one level, yes, but what Joel is saying is there is something supernatural. <coughs> as, far as, God is concer- as far as this is concerned, God is behind it all. God has allowed this to happen. So you get to verse 14 of chapter 1, and Joel says, Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and those who live in the land to the house of the Lord to cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction. Notice the next words, from the Almighty. It's the day of the Lord, and it's from the Almighty. So think about it. God is allowing this event to happen to teach a spiritual lesson to people who would not learn it. Life is not just merely a cycle. And by the way, that's true for us. You don't buy food so that you have something to eat so that you get strength so that you can go to work so that you earn enough money so that you buy food so that you have something to eat so that you have enough strength to go to work, to earn money, to buy food, and so on, and so on. You know, that's most people's lives. It's just a cycle, a a sort of continual cycle with very little meaning at all. And God is shaking them awake. Life is much more than eating your asparagus with its hollandaise sauce, your strawberries with their balsamic vinegar, or whatever it is that you eat for your lunch today, which I'm told are the two in things today. I never tried it. I don't want to try it sometimes. People think they're doing just fine, but where is God in all of this? That's what God is saying to these people. Where is God in all this self-centered living when they're not listening at all? And then Joel speaks about, it comes on the scene, and he speaks about this being the day of the Lord. It's the day of the Almighty. He's teaching us something. And then he jumps for forward. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. Hear this, you list elders who live in the land. Listen to this, in other words. And then chapter 2 in verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. So chapter 1 is primarily speaking about the invasion of locusts. Now he jumps forward and chapter 2, using the locusts in illustration, is speaking about the day of the Lord coming in a different way. And what he talks about in verse 11 is the great and dreadful day of the Lord. In other words, the supreme filling, the ultimate fulfillment of this this day. That's what he's speaking about. Chapter 1 is the immediate fulfillment. Chapter 2, he jumps forward to the ultimate fulfillment. But they're very much like each other, the great fulfillment of it. Verse 2 of chapter 2. It will be a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains, and large and a mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. Now he's speaking about not just locusts, but he's speaking about the armies that are going to come to invade Israel. Huge armies. You read in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 24, there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Matthew 24, verse, uh, Matthew 24 verse 21. And Joel describes it as being like an army. Verse 4. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry, with a noise like that of chariots. They leap over mountains, mountaintops. Like a crackling fire, it consumes stubbles like a mighty army drawn up for battle. Like the locusts, like the army that was coming to invade. And of course, when that happens, verse 6, At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the walls. They climb into houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them the earth shakes. The sky trembles. The sun and moon are darkened; the stars no longer shine. It's a fantastic picture looking to the armies so much like the invasion of the locusts, like the ones that we have just been speaking about. How vivid it is. When you think about it, as Matthew puts this day that's coming, he said he looks forward to a tremendous day when the People of God are invaded from outside. Now, as I said, there's immediate fulfillment, there's ultimate fulfillment, but there's intermediate fulfillment. And, of course, the intermediate fulfillment was, of course, there are many of them, but one of them was when they were carried off into Babylon and Assyria attacked and the armies came. Another one was in AD 70 when the Roman armies surged across and through Jerusalem and so on. But it all looks forward to the time when the armies will invade Israel at the end of the age and the people of God will be destroyed, or at least attacked at the end of the age. And it appears in the book of Daniel, it appears in the book of Revelation, but when it speaks of it in the Bible again and again, the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, it speaks about it in Ezekiel 38 and Ezekiel 39, the horrible, huge, invading, unstoppable judgment that's coming. It's Terrible. You can see why Joel chose this locust swarm as an illustration of how God's going to deal with his people one day. Yet at the same time, God says this northern invading army actually will eventually be overcome and will be defeated. Isaiah says so. Ezekiel says so. Daniel says so. Now Joel says so. So you get to chapter 2, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. After all, God doesn't delight in judgment he doesn't enjoy having to judge his people and so he calls to them rend your hearts and not your garments the difference between rending your hearts and garments is of course their garments was just the outward acts going through the routine no doubt they were still going to the temple to offer their sacrifices and still doing all the things they should have done outwardly speaking but their hearts were not in it same as we might come to worship Sunday by Sunday, but our heart's not involved in it at all. And here Joel has said, "Listen, rend your heart, not just your garments. Return to the Lord. Return, not just outwardly, but inwardly." It's that story of the little boy whose mum told him to sit down in the car. He wouldn't sit down. He just stood there. And she said, "If you don't sit down, I'm going to pull the car over to the side of the road and I'll stop the car and you." and I'll stay there till you sit down. And he wouldn't sit down, so she pulled the car over to the side of the road. And he just stood there like that. And she turned the engine off, and she said, I'm telling you to sit down, and I shall stay here till you sit down. Eventually, the little boy slid into his seat. And she said, thank you very much, and drove off up the road. And as they went off up the road, he said, I may be sitting down on the outside, but inside I'm still standing (laughs) up. And sometimes we're like that with God. And here we're told not just to render. our Garments to the outward things. But rend our hearts. Have broken hearts at our waywardness and our sinfulness. Verse 18. For God is jealous for his land. And he wants to take pity on his people. Verse 20. I will drive the northern army far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land with its front columns going up the eastern sea and with those in the rear to the western sea. And its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Do not be afraid, O land, but be glad and rejoice. Ezekiel 38 and 9 tell us the same, uh, same sort of picture. Eventually, the invading armies will be destroyed when the people turn back towards God. When I first left working in the city of London, I was at Cape and Ray for just nine months. And while I was at Cape and Ray, I was there for a short, short Bible school there, a few months there. And there was a man there who was an Armenian man in his late 50s. I was young, so I thought he was very old. But he was a young, uh, he, he was very active and had come to that Bible school. And talking with him one day, he suddenly burst into tears. It's unusual to see a man burst into tears when you're talking to him, but he did. He burst into tears. And talking with him, I asked him what the matter was and anything I could do to help. He said, no, I'm just reflecting. He said, I heard about Jesus and I heard about God's love for me when I was in my early 20s. And I made some sort of response to God's love in Jesus. But gradually it disappeared and drifted away. And most of my life, until just a year or two back, I've been living away from the Lord, but a year or two back I've come back to the Lord, and He said, I just weep for the wasted years. Years when I was just doing what I wanted and pleasing myself and so on. For the years He'd lost. It's a good thing to weep like that sometimes. But God says something else. Verse 25 of chapter 2. I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. The great locust and the young locust. The other locusts and the locusts swarm. My great army that I sent amongst you. You will have plenty to eat until you're full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God. Who's worked wonders for you. In other words, yes you were wrong. You did just please yourself, but I'll restore to you those years. The wonderful promise of scripture is that even when we have gone our own way, he will restore when we come back to him. And then he jumps forward again, verse 28 of chapter 2. You won't need me to tell you where these verses appear later on in the Bible. quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost as this prophecy was coming to fulfillment even then. Now how do we put this all together? Well, Joel didn't see everything clearly. In fact, the prophets hardly ever did. Peter says in the New Testament that the prophets often wrote about things they didn't understand. They longed to look into them, but they couldn't. They just didn't understand. But this was the time when God would be pouring out his spirit. That is our day, Peter is speaking about, Joel is speaking about. Beyond that, there'll come a time of the judgment of the nations, When the armies will invade, the judgment of the nations will come. When the Son of Man will be coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, Matthew 25:31. When all the nations will mourn and he will call his people to himself. At that time, the nations will be fighting. At times of war will take place. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. You've heard it quoted the other way around, haven't you? Well here, Joel puts it this way around. Turn your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Because this comes first, the nations will start fighting, the battles will take place until eventually God steps in and he says, turn your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks. And the reverse will take place. Then verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Here the decision is not men deciding what to do but God on the day of judgment. What is the decision about people? It's a reminder that we shall, with multitudes upon multitudes, the day of judgment will eventually come. God will be judging his people. But let's finish with the wonderful promises in verse 17 of chapter 3. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, God's people at that time of judgment in that day the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk and the ravines of Judah will run with water and the fountain will flow out of the house of the Lord and uh, will water the valleys of Acacias but Egypt will be desolate Edom a wasteland because of the violence done to the people of Judah in whose land they shed innocent blood And then right at the end, the Lord dwells in Zion. Blind determinism is not running this world. Blind determinism is not in control. God is. And for those who are his, this prophecy is a reminder that yes, there will come times when things will appear to be disastrous. But God allows these things to draw his people back to himself And eventually the time will come when the great judgments will take place. And we as God's people will know nothing but the blessing of God when the years that have been wasted will be renewed to us. They'll be fulfilled again and again at different times, but eventually the years that have been wasted will be fulfilled. And all the things that we have failed in will be forgotten. and We shall be with the Lord in Zion and we shall dwell with the Lord our God. He's drawing back people to himself time of blessing beyond our wildest dreams and how we should praise God and that's what Amos is speaking about. I don't think he has understood half of what he was talking about, perhaps we don't understand half, but it was a wonderful, wonderful prophecy of blessing yet to come when people turn back to God and how we should therefore turn back to him that we might know his blessing day by day. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this prophecy, this word of God. And though we don't understand every word of it and how it all fits together, we thank you for the wonderful promise that you allow things to happen sometimes that we don't understand and don't like, but you do it for a purpose, to draw us back to yourself, to remind us of your power. And we pray that you will enable us to turn our hearts to yourself and know you're restoring us and blessing us helping us to live for the praise of your glory till that time comes when all of these difficult things will be behind us forever and we shall see you face to face and dwell in the land of joy and plenty in your presence when there be no tears and no sorrow and no sighing and we shall live for the praise of your glory. So enable us to live with that upon our hearts and help us to live day by day walking with you in sweet fellowship reflecting your glory to those we come in touch with day by day. For Jesus' sake, amen.